Hello and welcome to Lake Forest On Topic. I'm your host, Tim Finnegan. With this podcast, we're trying to bring the residents of Lake Forest some information and insight into what's happening in this city. Today, my guest is David Sweet. David grew up in Lake Forest and moved back to the city in the early 2000s. He's a journalist who has worked for news outlets across the country, including the Wall Street Journal, MSNBC.com, the Sports Business Journal, and the Lake Forester. He is currently a contributor to Classic Chicago Magazine and edits the Lake Forest Love blog. In addition to his news writing and columns, David is the author of two books, Lamar Hunt, The Gentle Giant Who Revolutionized Professional Sports, and Three Seconds in Munich, the controversial 1972 Olympic basketball final. David received a Bachelor of Arts in Writing from Denison University and a Master's in Journalism from the University of Southern California. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. So you grew up here uh, in the 70s, and the town obviously has changed and evolved quite a bit since then. What what are some of your memories uh, of Lake Forest back then? Well, it was great. I lived on Ringwood Road, uh, which was a very quiet street, and uh, I just remember riding my bike a lot everywhere. Um, I remember exploring ravines. Uh, Ravines are such a big part of this town. Um, I remember collecting beer cans when that was a big trend back in the 70s, and I could find them, you know, in various ravines or uh, other areas. Um, I I grew up across from what was originally a Ryerson estate and had become a monastery by the time I grew up. So I would see monks walking around uh, our street, uh, and I'd go over there, and, you know, they had beautiful grass pathways and just tour that it was a, a maybe 15, 20 acres, a big estate. Um, and one time I did a story on the monastery and talked to the people there and so forth. Uh, I remember one time they ended up having like guard dogs. And one time there was a guard dog who like started chasing me and then somehow I got over the fence. <laughs> so, uh, but it was, you know, it was just a fantastic town to grow up in. Um, you know, the school's were and are all fantastic, depending if you want private, public, Catholic, whatever your choice is. Um, it, you know, it was just a very friendly town always. Uh, and I, some of my closest friends I grew up with, I'd known since age three. So, uh, you know, I, I, I remember a lot of the dads had season tickets to the Blackhawks. That was a big thing. So I went to, my dad didn't, but I went to a number of Blackhawks games with friends. Um, And one problem was the lake back then. Uh, It was, the beach was rocky. There were dead alewives uh, from pollution or whatever all over the beach and it smelled horrible. Um, But that was, you know, one of the few issues we had. Uh, I remember, you know, a lot of the shops like Left Bank, which is still in town, run by Bob Pasquazi, was a great spot. Kittles is still around. Uh, Coppins was a sports store back then, um, and a lot. So you know, a lot. It doesn't exist now, but a lot of stores like the Lake Four Shop and others have still, you know, stood the test of time decades later. So, so you moved back to Lake Forest uh, around the early two thousands, two thousand three. Um, we didn't have any more monks, and, and the, lake, <laughs> the lake has been cleaned up, and you could go swimming it by then. Right. Um, but you'd lived in Los Angeles and New York City before coming back to Lake Forest. Pretty big change, uh, both in lifestyle, as well as, you know, for somebody in the media business, the media opportunities. So why'd you come back? Well, uh, I'd 
gotten married in 2001 and we had a baby uh, in 2002 and we were living in Manhattan, my wife and I and our baby, Hannah. And we looked at the New York suburbs and they were sort of out of our reach in terms of affordability. Um, and I, you know, I'd realized and known how great it was to grow up here. So I knew it was a great place to raise kids as well. Uh, my parents were here. Uh, my brother had recently moved back. My sister lived nearby. Uh, so it made a lot of sense. Um, the only thing I had to do was convince my wife, who was a lifetime East Coaster in terms of schools and going to Cape Cod and all sorts of stuff, so she said her her line is she came here kicking and screaming, but she'd leave the same way because uh, she loves it here. So I we definitely made the right decision. So when you were in Los Angeles uh, after graduating from SC, you worked uh, for print newspapers, right? Um, but you ended up being a fairly early participant in the move to internet-based publishing, uh, both at the Wall Street Journal and at MSNBC.com. Uh, how did that come about, moving from a newspaper onto the online world? Uh, so, yeah, I had uh, left my job as a sports editor in Los Angeles, and there was this opening at the Wall Street Journal online. They, they were just starting, and a friend of mine told me about it. So they flew me out to New York, uh, put me up there, and I got the job. Uh, I remember, I believe it was April 29th, 1996, uh, the Wall Street Journal online came online, uh, full-fledged. And they charged uh, people to, you know, look at it, which was unique at that point. And I think newspapers have found out they have to charge for the content. It was actually one of the very first successful online subscription services out there. Was the you're, you're exactly right. And I think part of that was a lot of people could have their businesses pay for it. So that was helpful. Uh, and now I think they have millions of subscribers. I remember it, you know, kept going up in my five years there. It hit 300,000 and more. Uh, so my role was really as a uh, sports columnist or a sports business columnist looking at the uh, dawn of sports on the Internet. Uh, a lot of um, – there was CBS Sportsline was a big player. ESPN mm-hmm. obviously was. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of players were trying to get in on it. Uh, you know, they'd, uh, they'd start a website and hope people would contact them and they'd – tell people what they ate for breakfast and hope people would be interested. You know, it was a way for them to reach out to fans. Uh, And I remember, you know, interviewing Pete Rose and Billie Jean King and some big names. Um, So it was was a great job. And we, uh, I worked downtown right across from the World Trade Center. Um, And, and then MSNBC.com, I started around 2003. At one point they gave me a weekly sports business column, uh, just covering uh, you know, a variety of sports business stories. Um, but, you know, the internet, it, in terms of my career, was huge. I mean, I, you know, the Wall Street Journal would was like a dream job. Mm-hmm. And if it had just been the paper, I would have had to go through a lot of different steps to get on there. But being online, being read by people, and then they would take my column and put it in the paper. So, you know, it was fantastic. I loved it. So, so... This is the early 2000s, you're just starting, you know, again, it was the Wild West. There were all sorts of crazy stuff people would right. put on, hoping it would stick. You know, did you ever think we would we would move this far away in 2023 from print journalism to, to what we have today? That basically we're at the point that all but a handful of newspapers are obsolete. 
Unfortunately, it, it was looking pretty obvious. Uh, I remember I was an LA Times intern in 1990, and I walked. All right, I worked at their downtown mm-hmm. building, which sure. was like a big fortress. Yep, yep. Yeah, you, you probably know it. And um, and one day I walked in. There's this big sign. We are now the largest Metro Daily in the United States. It was something like 1.2 million subscribers. Ever since that day, I feel like uh, print journalism is gone on this long slide downhill and they you know this internet didn't really appear for five six more years um but you know i i think part of it is newspapers didn't really adapt well i mean even you know back then a lot of people subscribed but there were a lot of boring stories uh i don't know how you know i think they just in a lot of ways didn't keep appealing to readers as well as they should have and then online, they blew the economic model by uh, giving away the content. And finally, a lot of them, the Tribune, the New York Times, and others are charging. And I think they're doing fairly well with that. Mm-hmm. So they get that money plus the advertising money. Yeah. So. so you came back to Lake Forest, and you became the editor of the Lake Forester. Right. A hyper-local print publication as things are moving away from that. What did, what did you work on to, to make that paper stay relevant as we moved into this 21st century and online media? Well, the key was focus on Lake Forest. I think the paper had gotten away from its roots. Uh, they were doing stories, you know, about Mundelein, even Highland Park, uh, you know, the neighboring town that, you know, I don't think people really cared about. And given my background in town, I was able to interview a number of interesting people. Uh, I knew an editor at the Wall Street Journal, Melinda Beck, who had grown up here. Her mother, her, yeah, her mother was Joan Beck, a famous Tribune columnist. Uh, so I was able to interview interesting people in a format I called catching up with, and so that you know highlighted interesting personalities in town. I did a, a series called I think it was called Memories of the Mayors. Uh, and we interviewed every living mayor and got, you know, their insights on what were the challenges when they were mayor and, and what did they do with the $10 salary they got, that sort of stuff. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, I think there have also been a lot of, the, a lot of mistakes in the paper uh, under previous people. Uh, I remember opening one before I got there where the same column was published twice, Ooh. that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I, I cleaned all that up. Uh, so it was, a, it was an enjoyable job, except for the blotter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did you get a lot of calls from I, people I, saying, I would, I would "Could always... you actually forget to put that one in?" Yeah, <laughs> I, I was. I got calls. I had people crying in my office. I had someone who said, "You know, my husband will give you a year, a free year of dental work if you know you take, keep him out." All this <laughs> stuff. The problem. It's sort of interesting. I, I'm guessing I got 20 percent of what happened in town. Uh, that may not be the exact number, but you know, not a, not everything in town came our way. But we we I had to publish whatever I got because if I didn't, then I could be fired for not publishing it. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, the blotter always stressed me out. <laughs> but I, but I loved you know running the paper, improving it. Uh, at the same time, Pioneer Press was just all, not quite in shambles, but declining. Uh, while I was there, it went from sixty four newspapers to thirty two. The internet was hammering it, and their internet strategy was pretty weak. So, um, you know, I, and since I left the Lake Forester, they haven't had an editor with Lake Forest roots, and I think that's hurt them. 
It's fairly obvious when looking at it these days that it's just a jamble of whatever things they can put in it. Right, whatever is something to relatively up. north of Chicago-ish. Right, but it's you know it's kind of lost the thing you know the local paper where I grew up and like where you grew up you know the the pictures of the kids in sports and the pictures of the right. kids getting speeches or awards and yeah and that's what the parents all wanted to to see and put in the scrapbook exactly and and, and keep it relevant and that seems to have just kind of. That was the bread and butter of it. And, I mean, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, everyone got it. It was very thick with ads. Uh, today it's a shell of what it had been. Yeah. You know, we could all sit around and, and talk about the decline of local newspapers, both in places like Lake Forest, but even larger cities in the United States where, the, the, you know, the, they've gone from multiple papers to single papers, and the papers that are there are now just uh, AP stories put together right, right. Or, or syndication. Is there anything to be done about this lack of, of uh, local coverage um, in the media? Is, is, or is that just a market that doesn't exist? Well, no, I think it's a market that exists, but to your previous point, I mean, single paper towns and all that, I mean, Chicago's lucky, I mean, to have the Tribune, the Sun-Times, and Daily Herald. At the same time, both the Tribune and the Sun-Times went bankrupt. Um, but in terms of local news... I mean, people want it. They always want it, but how how do they want it? Do they want it via online? Do they want it via Instagram? Do they want podcasts? Maybe a combination of all those. Uh, but as you know, my kids don't read the newspaper. They're on their phone all the time, and they won't read newspapers. So this generation of reading of print papers, you know, in steady decline, probably in 25 years, no one will. I mean... Uh, which is very unfortunate. I mean, one of the favorite things I do is read magazines and newspapers in my office. And like uh, on a Saturday, I'll get the Weekend Wall Street Journal, and and it's just a joy to read. So yeah, I, I I'm still a newspaper subscriber. I get the the, the Trib, uh, the Sunday Times, and the Wall Street Journal during the week. Right. Um, though I have noticed when I first moved here about the same time you did in 2003, I used to be able to fill up a whole newspaper bag with the trib, you know, for a uh, you know, grocery bag for the recycling. Now right. it's, it fills about a third of a grocery bag right. for a week's worth of print. <laughs> That's but true. But the, um, it is, uh, it's a habit, I guess I grew up with in that they, they just don't grow up with it anymore. It's true. Uh, and the economics don't work if you can't, they don't. I mean, it. that's a great point. You think about it, uh, online versus print, print, you need a printing press, you need paper. I mean, think of the expense of that. You need labor for all that. And online, you don't need any of that. Yeah. So you save a lot of, a ton yeah. of money that way. So you're, you're still covering Lake Forest in a different way. You're right. uh, producing the Lake Forest Love blog, uh, which showcases uh, people in the community who make a contribution to the place. Right. Uh, what drew you to that project? Well, uh, it's sort of like when I went to the Lake Forester, I think there are so many interesting stories in town, really people who do interesting things that no one knows about. And so I've tried to bring those to light. Um, I mean, one example recently, uh, and it's interesting because it was it's just down the street from where I grew up, uh, Robert Krebs and his wife donated their Italian villa to Lake Forest College, mm -hmm. so students will be able to study in there and uh, and conduct research and so forth. And that's just the type of thing you don't read about, really, in, in many towns. I mean, <clears throat> even in towns as affluent as Lake Forest. Um, 
And there, I just think there are a lot of people here who are generous in that way and, and don't get the credit. Uh, and I recently wrote about uh, first-time book author Paula uh, Lillard Preschlack. I mean, she spent her career in Montessori education, which, and her mother's one of the most renowned Montessori educators around. And that's something that Lake Forest, Lake Bluff has that most towns don't have this beyond just robust education, robust Montessori education, which a lot of people don't know about. Um, so again, it's just Lake Forest is such a, a special place. And beyond the people, I'd say, you know, we have Lake Forest Open Lands, which is fairly unique. Um, for, for a town to have that. Uh, Gordon Community Center uh, is, you know, an excellent place that has really been rebuilt in the last 10 years uh, from, you know, being, you know, it had a lot of troubled times before that. Um, you know, we have Ragdale. We have just all these places that, uh, you know, towns like, say, Wilmette or Winnetka or whatever, you know, they don't, they don't have sort of the robust... Uh, Offerings we have, and I'll include Eloa Farm, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a few mm -hmm. that really make us stand out. Is there any story that you came across that that kind of just surprised you that it existed in Lake Forest, or that there, you know, these that, that uh, you just found fascinating to to uh, communicate to the community? Uh, boy, that's a great question. I mean, I mean, I'll I'll just say, growing up, I, I didn't know we had any of this really beyond Gordon. I didn't know we had open lands or Ella Farm or Ragdale or, uh, so I mean I guess I'd say coming back to the community, it's just been a joy to discover all of these, uh, uh, you know, just these fantastic spots. Uh, and the most recent one I think is uh, the Open Lands Gene and John Green Nature Preserve, which is uh, between Sheridan Road and Lake Michigan. Uh, that's a great spot to wander. It's right just north of the Fort Sheridan. Uh, forest preserve just beautiful spot only has uh, 20 parking spaces but I've, I've gone there with my wife and our daughter Hannah and uh, just really enjoyed it but it's I mean to your I, I just can't think of one like story where I'm like wow I mean I can't believe it because I, I think many times I've come across stories where it's like yeah this is this is amazing. Lake Forest has this. I have one story that you did that sure, uh, yeah. garnered a lot of attention recently. Um, uh, unfortunately, in some respects, yep. you wrote a piece about David Wad and his trip uh, on Ocean Gate, uh, right. the submersible, to go look at the Titanic. I think that was about a year and a half ago uh, mm -hmm. when you did that story. Obviously, back in the news. Um, what was what was going through your mind as that that story unfolded? Well, and I'll, I'll just first say, I think David's a perfect example of someone who doesn't look for attention, really, uh, but does some fascinating stuff. He used to have this uh, company, I believe it was called Underwater Ventures or Expeditions, where he'd go across the world and, and, and do uh, take movies of these beautiful spots. Uh, and so, and as an aside, uh, growing up, David played Santa Claus in our house for decades ah. on end. So, <laughs> and he was great at it. He uh, he got information in advance and always was very engaged with every all our kids and everything. But anyway, so he did this Titanic dive in the uh, Ocean Gate submersible. I think yeah, twenty twenty one. Uh, and the submersible came to Gorton Community Center. A lot of us, including me, sat in it. And I realized how claustrophobic I'd be trying to go down to the bottom of the ocean in it. Um, David's dive with it was very successful. He loved it. One of the great moments of his life. 
But yeah, unfortunately, within the last week or two, uh, Stockton Rush, who was also at Gorton, who started this whole Ocean Gate project, uh, Paul Henri, I can't remember his last name, who was also at Gorton, and uh, I talked, they, you know, two of the five in this submersible were there, and they died as it imploded, and the whole world was trying to figure out what was going on. Um, I feel badly for David. I'm sure he was shocked. Uh, you know, no one expected this. He he was convinced it was safe. Obviously, others. Yeah, the article even talks about the fail safes that how yeah, Stockton Rush. None of the yeah, he, he none of the people were coherent. Yeah, right, and that's exactly right. Stockton said if they were in, even if they were incapacitated, it would go to the surface and they'd be saved. So yeah, it's really sad. Um, you know, and it's sort of amazing. It was such a positive story two years ago about this great underwater venture that now, uh, you know, I can't imagine people even thinking of going on one in the yeah. after, in the aftermath of this news. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm glad that David uh, went on a successful one. Um, and I sent him a condolence note. Uh, because I know how shocked he had to be that two of his good friends were killed in it. Yeah, so. it's, it certainly was a tragedy. Um, one of the other projects I know you're working on these days is a story development for the Gorder Family Foundation. I'm not really familiar with that organization. What's their mission, and, and what are the projects you're doing for them? Uh, so their mission is basically to improve lives in Lake County. And Jim Gorder called me maybe three months ago, um, and he, I've, I've known him a little bit. He knew my parents well. I know his son Sid well. And um, he reached out and he said, would you be interested in doing, for lack of a better word, a book on how foundations, nonprofits, volunteers, churches, and others have improved lives in troubled parts of Lake County over the last 10, 15 years? Um, and I, at one point, Jim Gorder decided... To look north, uh, and what that means is a lot of the people in Lake Forest and on the North Shore, I'd say too, uh, they look south. They give their philanthropic money to Chicago, whether it be the Art Institute, the Science of Industry, uh, and or other ventures. Uh, but Jim realized, you know, there's a a lot of help needed in Lake County, and that could be with the North Chicago school system, uh, that could be with uh, health in the county. It could be with jobs. Um, so anyway, I'm, I've been interviewing a lot of different people, a lot of interesting people. I'll give you a quick story. Uh, a guy named David who is pastor at Christ Church in Lake Forest, he moved to North Chicago to build homes. He decided to build, he's going to build 300 homes. Hmm. Uh, and he's built, let's say, maybe a couple of dozen at this point. Obviously not all on his own. He's got a lot of help construction-wise, and there are many different parts to it in terms of who finances it and this and that. But he had sort of a calling to go, you know, help people in the community. And, uh, and he, you know, he moved himself and his wife and family up there to live in North Chicago uh, just to say, you know, I'm not just going to come up here every so often. I'm going to help you out every day. Um, so, you know, stories like that will sort of animate uh, this whole project, you know, these real uh, stories of people who have needed help and uh, and are getting it. So, 
So you're, you're writing when you look at it, you know, you've been these online sports columnists, um, you've written books, uh, you've done local reporting, you've done private label commercial work, working for corporate entities even. Um, when you write across all those different forms, what's the same and what's different? Uh, boy, that's a great question. Uh, well, some want shorter pieces, some want longer pieces. Uh some want a dramatic opening. Some just want, you know, just be more factual. Yeah, I, you know, at times it's hard to adapt because I'm, I am writing in a lot of different formats. Um, I, I, but, you know, I, I have my own voice. I try to be consistent with that. Uh, classic Chicago Magazine. I love writing for them. Uh, they really don't edit me, and I can pick any topic, and I can write about it in any way I want, and. And they print it, and <laughs> a lot of those go on to the Lake Forest Love Blog too, because sure. they're about Lake Foresters. Um, but I mean, I'd say my ideal type of writing is probably a feature story, uh, where I start with a dramatic opening, build up the middle with a lot of facts, and finish with a memorable ending. So. So I, I know one of the other things you do in town here is you're, you're involved with the History Center of Lake Forest. So what do you have going on with them these days? Uh, so, yeah, I was, I was on their board for six years. I was their secretary, and then they've asked me to come back on their advisory committee. And so the key thing that's coming up is uh, Don Pearson. He's an NFL Hall of Fame writer who covered the Bears forever and the NFL for, let's say, combined 40 years for the Chicago Tribune. Um, I'm going to interview him in October at the History Center and, uh, you know, just ask him about his career and, and uh, just great stories you might have about Mike Ditka, George Hallis. <laughs> Probably a few. <laughs> Probably a few, exactly. Uh, and Don's a fantastic guy. I reached out to him 15 years ago to say, you know, I'd like to get to know you. We both live in town. We're both sports writers, et cetera, et cetera. And he's, he helped me with my, my uh, Lamar Hunt book because he... He had, uh, I wouldn't say close ties, but he had ties to Lamar Hunt, even though Lamar Hunt was mainly, you know, owned the Chiefs and lived mm -hmm. in Dallas. Don dealt with him as the NFL writer. Um, so anyway, that should be a great event with, uh, you know, let's, it's, I should say it's also part, it's the local legend series that okay. the History Center has run for, say, 15 years now. And they've had people like Jim Lovell on it and Bill Curtis and, uh, so it's always a great event that, uh, you know, you, you, again, it's back to the interesting people who live in town who deserve to be heard from. So you grew up here, you chose to come back here, you covered the town as a newspaper editor, still cover the town and the people here and activities that make it an interesting place. What makes Lake Forest such a unique place and how do you describe it to somebody who's never been here? In terms of uniqueness, I, I'd say... I think Lake Forest has this image that still exists of uh, a lot of snobby people. I really haven't found that. Uh, I think people are fairly laid back uh, and, and inviting and welcoming. Uh, so that's one unique thing. Uh, I'd also say that, as I mentioned before, all these great resources from Ellowa Farm to Gordon to Open Lands to Ragdale, and again, I know I'm missing a few, but, uh, you know, what... And, and the library is a beautiful spot. I mean, and the, every town has libraries, but 
uh, we just have so much to offer. Uh, and sorry, sorry, what was the second part of your question? Well, no, I mean, how if somebody who's never been here, somebody oh, you've right. met in New York or LA, and they say, Where do you live? Right, Lake Forest, where's that? And it's north of Chicago, right? What's Lake Forest like? Right, uh, I'd say again, it's a welcoming community, a friendly community. Uh, you go uptown and people smile at you. There's no, I don't see in my day to day life any real uh, discord in terms of like people I'm talking with or things I'm dealing with at least. Um, and it, it's near Chicago, so you can take advantage of their uh, cultural activities. You can always go to Wisconsin and go to the Brat Stop and <laughs> have fun up there. Well, some people think Lake Forest is like in Wisconsin. If you talk to somebody from like the Park Ridge, right? right they're like, you, you all the way up to Lake Forest. I'm like, it's you know, 20 miles. It's right. not the... Uh, right. But and, and I just throw out, too, I mean, our beach is, it's a great beach. Everyone wants the to go there now. The lakefront's gorgeous. Forest Park is beautiful right by the beach. Uh, I should, yeah, I should mention the whole park system is, you know, it may not be unique, but it's vibrant and, uh, you know, in great shape. I think also the city uh, keeps things in excellent shape. I mean, you don't see a lot of litter or bad roads or... Uh, I mean, it's all, it's almost funny to say, but you know, trash pickup twice a week is a big advantage. I mean, especially we have five of us in our home, and uh, you know, we we generate nice plenty of trash. Yeah, so. uh, you know, you've written a, a couple of books, uh, both focused on sports. One on, as you mentioned, Lamar Hunt, who was the owner of the uh, Kansas City Chiefs and a big part of the creation of the AFL. Um, but he had an impact on a lot of other sports. And you also wrote one about the USA basketball team in the 72 Olympics, the Munich Olympics, which I remember both those Olympics well and that game very well. Um, and both kind of interesting topics to delve back into after the fact. But what, what story is still out there that you want to tell? Not that it has to, you know, if it doesn't have to make money, it doesn't have to be a big commercial success. But what's the one thing that... You know, my experience with the writers, they've always had something that they really wanted to figure out how to get get onto paper or onto, I don't know, pixels now, but right. um, that, that, that you really would like to have the opportunity to tell. Well, to be honest, I feel like I've, so far, I've told the stories I want to tell, so I can't think of one, although I will say one that always sort of fascinated me was when I was a sports editor in Los Angeles, I went to Leo DeRocher's funeral, and he, as everyone knows, famous baseball manager. He's well-known in Chicago uh, during the Cubs collapse of 69, <laughs> uh, one World Series and all this. And I was fairly young when I went to this funeral, and uh, I went in in, uh, where was it? maybe Burbank or somewhere, and the church, there were only 40 people there. Oh, wow. And I thought there'd be hundreds and hundreds. And, uh, and you know, Major League Baseball didn't even send a representative. He was close friends with Frank Sinatra. He didn't send a representative or himself. Uh, and so amid, amid all this, Willie Mays was there. You know, and growing up, Willie Mays was like the ultimate baseball player. Sure. So, and he said he would have showed up no matter what because Leo DeRocher was so important to him. Uh, and that when Leo, or sorry, when Willie was 19 and in New York and in tears because he didn't, you know, he was in a slump, Leo always helped him. And I don't, you know, if there's a way to build a story around just that moment, 
I, you know, I'd like yeah, to. I don't know if I could. How, how does somebody at one point, you know, so famous, right, end up in the right in, in there? And 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 one thing that was sad too is he had never been elected to the Hall of Fame, but then after he died, they elected him. They do yeah. that often. Yeah. But you know, he was a guy who, you know, his whole life was probably just like, please get me in the Hall of Fame at that point, and you know, he never he died before he knew he. <laughs> he had yeah. gotten in. So anyway, again, there. Who knows what story I could write around that? It was just it's, one. It's an interesting, but it's an interesting. Right. I mean, I I know Leo DeRoche. I knew Leo right. Lip right or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, exactly. Yeah. And but don't really know a lot about him. Right. And, and what happened and what occurred. But, yeah. But so yeah, that's you never know where the interesting story. I didn't yeah. know Lamar Hunt was involved in all those other sports as well. I mean, right. Yeah. Very famous for Kansas City. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, David, thank you for uh, talking today. It's been great. I've enjoyed it quite a bit. It's been great, Tim. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Okay. So Lake Forest on Topic is a production of Lake Forest for Transparency Organization. To learn more or to leave some feedback, go to lf the number four transparency.com. That's lf4transparency.com This podcast was produced by Jennifer Karras and John Turkla. Sound engineering is by John Turkla. I'm Tim Finnegan. Thanks for listening and have a great day.